0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I as a Christian believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies at GodisGreyXO Gray XO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash God is gray. Now, on to the episode. Hi, beautiful people. Today, I wanted to introduce you guys to the wonderful Sarah Bessie. She is the author of Jesus Feminist, a book that I did a video on recently that I really wanted you guys to pick up and read. I still want you to pick up and read. Nothing in this book should scare you guys. It is biblically based. She is a very thoughtful, researched kind of person. It's not like throw the baby out with the bathwater kind of theology. It is based in her understanding and belief system around Jesus and why and how Jesus was one of the OG feminists in history, and why we are welcome to be feminists too. So hi, Sarah. (laughs)
1: Hello, I'm so happy to be here. So um, I live in a small city just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia called Abbotsford. Um, So just kind of caught right between the oceans and the mountains on, on both sides. So it's really beautiful here. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the prairies in Saskatchewan and Alberta. So um, this feels really nice uh, to be out here. So my husband and I have been married for almost 19 years. Wow. Yeah. So we've been together for a long time. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. And uh, we have four children. Our eldest, um, they range in age from like teenager to toddler. And so we had our first three and four years. And now those kids are... Um, growing up and just becoming such wonderful people. And then we had one last little surprise baby about four and a half years ago uh, <laughs> to keep us young. <laughs> and so it's been really fun. They're a, a great little crew. What do
0: you have, boys, girls?
1: Three girls, one boy.
0: Are they all feminists?
1: <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> they absolutely are. <laughs> so is my husband. We we enjoy it quite a bit. It's, it's funny because, you know, my children have grown up in a context where it's just so normalized. Mm -hmm. that when I have to say, well, you know, this particular community, you know, doesn't have women preaching, you know, my son and my daughters will be like, that is bananas. (laughs) They've never (laughs) encountered a world where they were not, you know, fully welcome to serve altogether, right? And so to them, that is is the, the side of things that seems completely unbelievable, like they can't even fathom it. And so that's a good way to grow up, I think.
0: I know that's very hopeful for the next generation because I don't know how you grew up but I grew up the opposite um you know my my father is such a good man I always I feel like I'm always throwing him under the bus but I'm not at all he's always growing and evolving but mm-hmm. he definitely taught me some of the more you know, traditional, which wound up being toxic messages growing up. And he just learned them from a tradition that he came from. And then when I got into evangelical Christianity in my teen years, everything he said was reinforced. So, you know, it was very prevalent at that time. It was just understood. And I remember not even batting an eyelash. I was like, oh, yeah, women can't preach because that's not our role. And women can't do this because that's not our role. And you know, I had I had no desire to preach, I guess, so I wasn't offended by it. But obviously, I'm breaking these things down and learning so much more. But um, would you describe for anyone in the audience, whether they're in it or this is foreign concept to them, why the word feminist is such a triggering word for people in the Christian community?
1: You know, there's actually, that's a great question, by the way. <laughs> because it's actually that's even where the title kind of came from was it was just kind of a cheeky answer that I used to give to people because I grew up in a context where and and from the time I was quite young felt very comfortable with the word feminist I mean it was Maya Angelou who said you know of course I'm a feminist it'd be silly not to be on my own team but (laughs) (laughs) no one never an end to her wisdom but one of the things that I remember really just kind of almost um having a passion for really even from the time I was probably the age of my daughters now, right? Like that, you know, preteen teenager kind of age. And loved working with women, loved being around women, have always really um known about the power of strong of women, period, but particularly strong women who are aware of that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me, I used to always say, well, of course I'm a feminist. And it was funny to me because a lot of um, you know, my husband at the time was in uh, uh, in pastoral ministry, and people would sort of, you know, clutch their pearls, you know, <laughs> you know, and have a moment of being like, well, what kind of feminist? Like, it was just like I said, the F word in church, right? Mm-hmm. And I used to just kind of laugh and say, oh, I'm a Jesus feminist, you know, and it was just sort of my way of saying, you know, maybe in a cheeky way, you know, that I was a feminist, not in spite of Jesus, but because of Jesus, mm-hmm. that it was following Jesus that made a feminist out of me. I love that quote in your book. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it was my reality for what, what shaped why I was a feminist. It wasn't, it wasn't something I had to reconcile or wrestle with. It was something that to me was a very clear path. Um, And so I learned, though, you know, later on in your life, that a lot of people do see it as a trigger word. They and a lot of that is because there was a very robust uh, Christian feminist movement that happened in that second wave of feminism in the in the sixties and seventies. And talking to those women now um, is really remarkable because the conversations that we are having now mirror in so many ways, the conversations they were having then around intersectionality and race and the church and, um, you know, even uh, gender studies. I mean, in so many ways, the church and women in church were wrestling with those things on a very high level and and really seeing it enter into their churches. And it wasn't until the 80s when there was this massive um, kind of resurgence of like that moral majority um, conservatism that kind of took root that it seems that there was also a, a, a joint movement towards, back towards patriarchy in the church. Gotcha. And in a lot of ways, feminists became the boogeyman. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so for people like yourself who were growing up in the eighties and didn't understand that, you know, maybe, at, you know, again, we're, we're For children, we don't know, right? All we know is that all the adults in our life are kind of being influenced by this larger cultural conversation that's happening around home and family and work um, and gender and roles, and these things are happening. And so talking to women who were a part of that second wave church feminist movement um, is really interesting because they're very, oftentimes very sorrowful. Really? That they felt like um, they they were fixing it for us Mm. and the backlash against it that arose in the 80s and 90s, the movement towards, um, you know, whether you want to call it complementarianism or soft patriarchy, um, these authoritarian male centered movements um, was really a backlash in a lot of ways and, and went way further into fundamentalism. And then that really deeply shaped the church conversations in the 80s and 90s um, and even into the or into the early 2000s. That's what's kind of interesting to me with a book like Jesus Feminist that has connected with so many people. I mean, there's literally nothing new in there. <laughs> like, <laughs> these are conversations that had been happening in the church and in academia for generations. It's just for some reason... Um, they never really made the jump into actual people's lived experiences and lives.
0: It was
1: still patriarchy was the norm in the Christian church, which is, you know, heartbreaking.
0: Yeah. That's so fascinating. It's reminding me that when I, I first went to the women's March, when Trump was elected, my sign that I wrote said, my mother already marched for this. Don't make my daughter too. Mm. And it again feels like we're running the risk that my daughter might have to march for the same things that I am. And it blows my mind. And I think a lot of people, maybe you guys in the God of His Grey community won't even really know. And this is why I really encourage you guys to research and get into your history. Because if you're born in the 80s, like you said, like I was, you think everything started and ended there and the church was always like that and always had this patriarchal slant since the beginning. And then of course you can cherry pick verses from the Bible that validate that sort of understanding. And those verses can be weaponized against women or men, anyone that feels differently about them. But in reality, there was a moment where we were starting to rise where we were having these conversations and it was really shut down by Jerry Falwell and that movement that happened, like you said, in the eighties with Ronald Reagan and then Bush and now Trump. So mm-hmm. it's just like history repeating itself over and over.
1: Yeah, um, it's a bit, really interesting thing too to look back and see, you know, how many again. I'm, I come from a Pentecostal background,
0: mm-hmm. very
1: happy, clappy, flag waving, tambourines, whole thing. Oh, I, I like. I love it. Flag. <laughs> love it so much. <laughs> but um, one of the things that we have seen even in our history is, um, is this cycle of of how often revival is um, led by a, a releasing of women. You know, you can see if you look back through those histories that, you know, women's, um, you know, work and leadership and empowerment happening, you know, after Azusa happening in the in the 20s um before the tent revivals were really kind of gearing up in the 40s and 50s and so you can see these moments happening throughout history even in the 1850s um with the great awakenings that were happening in the united states and in the uk um the it's so deeply tied to the empowerment and anointing of women and seeing that because you begin to see like wait a minute, this story is not the whole story. And even you begin to understand those particular Bible verses you were talking about, in their context, you start to see them as they were tearing down powers and principalities. They were empowering women that actually these things that we've been using to bench half the church would probably break Paul's heart <laughs> because He was so focused on working with women and empowering women and leading alongside of women. And the misunderstandings of those things um, is really remarkable when you look back, especially at how the early church functioned um, as such an egalitarian, uh, you know, structure in so many ways. Um, And really was the beacon of the one place where women could thrive, Mm. you know?
0: Yeah. So how how would you summarize, if possible, how we keep going back to this? Because it is true, like I think, in my reading of Jesus Feminist, you illuminated characters to me um, in the Bible, not characters, real historical women, that like you said, had positions of great power, of great anointing, um, that were highly esteemed, by Paul himself, who is known as, like, this champion for, like, anti-women, for people that (laughs) use his words to weaponize and to hold women down. But why is it, do you think, that the narrative keeps shifting back to this patriarchal ideal? That's
1: a really good question. And there's probably two ways I would answer it. One of them probably more practically, and one of them maybe a little bit more in my woo-woo brain. Because, again, I lean pretty heavy on the charismatic side <laughs> of things, which can get weird, but we're just going to roll with it. Um, you know, the from a practical perspective, I think you can say that it's, it's really our culture. Our culture is patriarchal. Our culture has um, usually almost always been patriarchal, there are pockets of exceptions where that has not been the case. the Bible was written in a patriarchal society. Mm-hmm. And so in a lot of ways, um, the church adapts and and takes on these functions of our culture and almost to me that the saddest thing about it, is that then they baptize it with sacred language. They and, act like it's the holy thing, or yeah. like it is the godly thing, when in truth we are meant to be dismantling those things and embodying what God's shalom actually looks like within our communities. And so that to me is, is one of the most tragic things about it, is we're not seeing that this cultural thing, the which again goes to maybe the more woo-woo side of my understanding of it, which yeah. is that these are powers and principalities like Paul talked about, right? These are the powers and principalities of our age, whether it's racism, homophobia, poverty, um, you know, patriarchy, sexism, all of these, violence, uh, all of these things are the powers and principalities of the age and of the world. And a large large part of our prophetic work as the church is to stand in resistance and, alter- and embody an alternate to that. And so in so many ways, it feels like, um the reason we keep going back to those things is, is probably complicated, but I think that there's deep, freeing, prophetic work that we need to do as a church and as people within those structures to say, you know what, no, we're not going to, we're not going to baby the powers and principalities of this age and somehow act like they are from God. These are the things that we are actively dismantling and then establishing communities that are predicated on the complete opposite in the teeth of these structures we're going to be setting up these prophetic communities and prophetic way of life that is filled with equality and and wholeness and love and safety and you know and goodness for men and for women i'm probably going to get in trouble for some of this like <laughs> you, it. you might need to go back <laughs> to that at some point because now i'm getting fired up but i think the thing that i find most tragic about it is that um is that how often this is how it works, that the culture enters the world's structures and systems and powers enter our churches. And rather than us identifying it and treating it with it, with the seriousness that it deserves, we say, well, let me just prop up some lovely Jesus language around this to make it look like a kinder, gentler form of patriarchy.
0: Right. When in
1: reality we're meant to be dismantling that whole system and embodying this thing that, that the church really envisioned right from, from the start with Jesus, that Jesus embodied fully and gave us a path to follow on. And so, yeah, I think that there's just a lot of, of hope there, but it starts with um, honesty. I think it starts with, uh, with a lot of truth telling. It starts with maybe recognizing where we are and why, um, so that you can see that it's not just a, an inevitability.
0: Here's an irony that I'd love to bring up that you are bringing up, and I want to quote you on this as well. Um, Someone in my comment section on your Jesus Feminist video that I made said, Christians tend to confuse the word countercultural with the word regressive. and. That's good. The great irony is that I see in a lot of Christian YouTubers and a lot of just Christian preachers among the world is they always say we have to be countercultural to be countercult. Like if the culture is moving towards freedom for LGBTQ people, if the culture is moving towards equality for women, and the households having a new you know, vibe where it's not everyone in their traditional gendered roles, even if it makes both parties or one party miserable, then they say that's what culture is doing. We can't do that. We need to be countercultural by, like my commenter said, being regressive is what it comes down to. Mm -hmm. And in your book, the quote you say is live counterculturally. We live counterculturally when the culture baptized or secular does not affirm truth, love, faith, mercy, and justice. In other words, when we look at us being countercultural and it's driving LGBTQ people to commit suicide or it's driving people to divorce and unhappy marriages because they're stuck in these gendered roles, that's not countercultural. We are fighting against mercy and justice and faith and love and truth and honesty. (laughs) Preacher, yes. (laughs) your words. I'm just saying. (laughs) No, you're doing great. I think honesty, honesty, honesty is such an important tenet of our faith. You know, you talk about how women have been stuck in these gendered knitting circles and putting together floral bouquets and cooking for the church. And it's like, yes, God can be found there. Community can be found there. But some women thrive shouting at the top of their lungs women are capable and called to do very powerful things you also say something i don't remember the exact quote but you were like church is supposed to be the place where we are thriving more than any other place where we feel more capable of being ourselves than any other place and i really wonder how many people walk in the church doors and feel like they can be who god made them to genuinely be
1: yeah absolutely and I think that that's the the thing about it that is really um, can light a fire under you, I think, in terms of just the the great possibility. I mean, going back to the early church, um, I remember there was uh there was one uh, leader who said, "Well, the Christian church is entirely made up of women, children, and slaves, and that was true, and the reason why is because that was literally the first and only place where they were fully equal.
0: Wow
1: where they were able to fully function and be part of the community, to be valued and loved and cherished. Um, It was their safe oasis, their harbor in the midst of this Greco-Roman patriarchal system where they were just getting eaten up and spat out. And so in a lot of ways, you know, are there movements in our culture towards justice? I mean, absolutely. You look at the Me Too movement, you look at the Times Up movement, even the Church Two movement um in so many ways there are are pockets of love and freedom and joy and goodness that are happening there and the truth is is that all all truth is god's truth right there's not a, there's not this line and this division between the world and the church or um you know sacred and secular Right. If it is if it if it is something that is bringing God's flourishing and goodness in in the world, then I think we can rejoice and be grateful for that. I think in a lot of ways, too, we have confused um, this 1950s vision of white male patriarchy with God's kingdom. Yeah. And it's not. First of all, if anybody's looking back at the 1950s and thinking those were the good old days, then you're probably a straight white male, <laughs> because literally yeah. nobody else thinks that those were the good old days. <laughs> Truly. yeah. And so I think that in some ways we confuse um, being biblical, being faithful, um, being Jesus centered, with looking like a particular cultural moment that we have tricked out in our imaginations and idealized, and then weaponized against every other every other person. And so. You know, I think that all everything that you said lines up and is, I think, the the opportunity really that we kind of have in this place of saying, you know, what would it look like then for, what would it look like if the number one place where women were flourishing was the body of Christ? What would it look like if the number one place where people were valued and loved and celebrated and empowered and equipped and sent out back into the world to be bringing shalom and goodness and peace and all the fruit of the Spirit into their communities, into their work, into their schools, I mean that's the kind of thing that that topples empires,
0: yeah, it really blows my mind you're just describing the kingdom of God so beautifully as it just so clearly is laid out to me when you look at jesus's words and testimony in the world, and i don't i I wonder all the time where this us versus them mentality began to flourish as well, like There's always been so much fear, even in my comment sections. Again, people will attack me. They'll say, be in the world, but not of the world. And then I'm hanging out with too many sinners, and I'm engaging in too much sinful activity because I'm...
1: If you're getting the same critiques Jesus got, you're in a good spot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm in good company. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, there's so much fear of the outsider, like, From your perspective, as someone that I can see is so settled into your role as a Christian woman, genuinely thriving and being unafraid of the world and being unafraid to send these messages out, how can people gain more confidence to be like, okay let's say they're afraid of crossing the line. Like at what time does culture become too much and become anti-Christian? At what point are we engaging too much in the secular society and we're in danger? Are we ever in danger? Are we just in Christ and, and shouldn't fear at all? Like what is your perspective for someone that maybe is being triggered and afraid by, you know, the full confidence you're basically offering them to go out in the world?
1: You know, I think that that's a great question. And one I think that not a lot of people realize is how oftentimes even a lot of our defaults to these things, it's not happening because, um, you know, people are usually evil. Right. It's not some big mastermind agenda, right. Of, of, you know, people sitting at base. I mean, there might be, I wouldn't put it past some folks, but (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly. But I think on on the whole, uh, a lot of people are usually doing the best that they can with what they have and what they know. Um, And I think at the end of the day, it's oftentimes is motivated by fear, Mm -hmm. right. That fear is the thing that's actually driving, um, you know, our responses, our theology, Um, The truth is, is that everything that we know and believe about the nature and character of God is what creates those things in our life, right? So whatever we're we're doing, whether it's what we believe about women or what we believe about, um, you know, racism and white supremacy in the world right now, what we believe about politics, what we believe about, you know, wherever it is that we kind of find ourselves, all all of our opinions, all of our way of being in the world, it's all tipping our hand about what we believe about the nature and character of God. And who God is and and so then you start to really needing to kind of almost and I know this is getting maybe a little bit you know few too many levels you know too high of a 30,000 foot view here but the truth is is that if you see God as an angry judge who's out to you know keep as many people out of heaven as possible right and you know wreck havoc and judge and and threaten and is violent and these kinds of things then that fear in it it takes over everything in you i think it damages your soul right it damages your brain it damages your life and your body and your relationships and so for me i feel like the, the number one thing that i i say i would say to people who are feeling afraid um is that in in love there is no fear And so the the beginning point for me then is beginning to understand and know and relearn and re-experience God as love, Mm. to understand how beloved you are, to understand how much you are loved, that you have worth and value far beyond all of your right opinions and ticking every single box in some made-up star sheet you kind of have to be the best in the class. God is not you know, a a banker, (laughs) you know, totaling things up to decide who has worth and who doesn't. You are deeply loved, deeply valuable, deeply important, cherished above all. And so being able to have that become part of your identity then means that's the place you are living out of, right? Because then you're not living out of your fear. You are, you know, as we see in scriptures, that you have been given, you know, love and power and a sound mind. You know, that you don't have a spirit of fear any longer. That that fear can just be, you know, almost in a, in a practical way. You can practice your way out of it. You can discipline your way out of it. You can choose your way out of it. You can behavior modify your way out of fearful behaviors. But I think what we're really after is something more than that. And that is actually transforming, right? Actually seeing that transformation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our hearts and minds so that we become this extension of love and goodness in the world that we are craving.
0: Mm. And you don't have to get too personal on this answer, but I wonder, have you ever had to go on a journey like that of, you know, have you always perceived God to be this all loving being that cherishes you or were you ever taught at a point that he was vindictive and vengeful and scary?
1: <laughs> you know, I think that sometimes this is, is, you know, maybe even a bit of a case study probably to someone because no, I mean, my family came to faith when I was a child. My parents are first generation believers. Okay. Um, they were, and so in a lot of ways, we came to Christ together, right? My mom and dad and my sister and I, we, we grew in the faith literally together, <laughs> you know? So in a lot of ways, we had those experiences. And so we, um, we didn't have a whole lot of things to unlearn. And we were fortunate that our base code was that God was love. And that, you know, and, and even that those questions and, and those ways of, of Jesus being in the world, that it was always through this lens of, of love. It was always through this lens of who Jesus was in the world. And so I think that that is a tremendous gift to be able to get. But I will say um, that my natural self is a people pleaser. Okay. Like my natural, like base code setting is approval addict. Every, mm-hmm. every major sin and regret in my life tracks its way back. To that, to to please others. (laughs) And it wasn't until I was well into uh, my 30s before, no, it was in my early 30s. But I remember having this year where I really decided to engage with being fearful. And really, really began to practice and 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 to try to explore and relearn God, but also my own self and in the world to engage with justice, to engage with these conversations. That was the year I decided to write Jesus Feminist. That was the year, you know, in a lot of ways, everything that's happened since then has its seeds in a, in a year that I spent just kind of really grappling with what it meant to be fearless, what it meant to ground my identity and who Jesus said I was. And in what I actually believe about God to embody what I say, I believe, I say, I believe this, what would it mean? What would it look like if I actually meant it? Right. And I mean, that was life changing for me. So yeah, I mean, I don't think it comes naturally to anybody. I don't think anybody's more brave than anyone else. I think that sometimes it's just, you know, a matter of of sometimes that intersection of the Holy Spirit's activity and our choices, right? Uh Both of those things happen, have to happen at the same time.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing that because I, I, when you were talking about God's love, I just saw it radiating off of you. And I don't get envious in a bad way, but sometimes I envy it when I see it mm-hmm. looking so seemingly easy to somebody else because that's one of my greatest journeys, especially hosting these God is Great conversations because it's like the voice of the antagonist is constantly in my head. In mm-hmm. a literal form of comments and other people and it's just like, oh my gosh. Yes. <laughs> well, I was already afraid I was gonna go to I hell. I was already <laughs> afraid,
1: of, you know,
0: I didn't need yeah. to see it in writing from yeah, a stranger.
1: Really, A great big help. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's nothing worse than when people like articulate the thing the worst thing you're already thinking about yourself, right? Yeah. And or about, you know, what's what the risk is. And I think that, that one of the things too that I have learned is that people are often very afraid for someone to um, take a step out of what has worked for them, Mm. right? Or even, even they feel like you doing something different is a critique of their choices.
0: Absolutely. And
1: it's not necessarily. And in a lot of ways I have found that the very things that people are trying to kind of like clutch onto you and hold you back from, that those are, that's actually coming at the invitation of the Holy spirit, Mm. right? That it's not that you are wandering into the wilderness where you'll be devoured, But rather, the wilderness is where God calls their people Mm -hmm. for intimacy and encounter. And so if you're feeling a call into that liminal space of questioning and deconstruction and rethinking things and evolution even, um, that I really do believe that 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 is something that is an invitation of the Holy Spirit for us to be able to walk into that. It's nothing to be afraid of. And I think sometimes the biggest gift we can give people when we see them in those in-between spaces of saying, I don't really know what I think about this or that or what I believe anymore, that sometimes the best gift we can give them is to say, you don't need to be afraid. Mm -hmm. You are held in that, that God is present in this place, that you will encounter God here. It's not like back there is the only place where you're going to find Jesus anymore, Mm -hmm. that there's a new thing happening here.
0: Yeah, and you bring me to another of your quotes. Um, Once you taste love, you are ruined for the empty shells of religious performance. And that resonates so deeply with me because church can sometimes be seen as just a stagnant place where you're supposed to come in and present yourself in a certain manner and you have to be wearing your best and looking your best and even to that you talked about this really heartbreaking story in the book where a girl was coming out of I believe like the foster care system or something and she wasn't presenting herself properly in church she wasn't wearing the right clothes and she ended up feeling abused and mistreated, and it, it drove her to committing suicide. And, you know, her note had said that it was in part because of the way she was treated in this environment where she thought she was supposed to be loved. And we are supposed to be in the church, that that place where people are going for solace. And you just don't see that in church at the moment, the Mm -hmm. society that we have going on, all of the screaming that people are doing on both sides, I, you know, the last place I would send a friend in turmoil might be that place, unless I've like fully vetted it and I know that the people are not going to harm them in any way, and I know that if a girl walks in with her spaghetti straps, she's not going to be shamed for it. Mm -hmm. You know, recently I read a tweet from a priest who was complaining that a girl came in in spaghetti straps and was distracting him, and he called her out on it. And I was just like, this is the opposite of everything we're supposed to be doing. What on earth are we doing? And with that quote, you said, once you taste love and you have love capitalized, because I believe you're referring to God himself, Mm -hmm. is, you know, all of the performance and all of the things you wear and all of the ways you're trying to fit your your square peg into every round hole just goes out the window. And you're Mm -hmm. like, and I think, I love that what you said about your journey with fear you recognize to me that move of the Holy Spirit, that prompting that was like, okay, Sarah, we're going to do something brand new. And for you to just dive in, I, I believe everyone listening has their own call that they're meant to dive into, that little prompting in their heart of something probably really scary, very out of your box, but very true to who you are at your base, at your core, who God made you to be.
1: Mm-hmm yeah absolutely. absolutely. And I think that you know having some awareness around that is really helpful. but I think that as well, um, you know it's it's a great tragedy. I think that sometimes you know the the place where people get the most you know damage is oftentimes within religious environments. Mm-hmm. And so it's unfortunate, but also like it's a reality. And so at a certain point, I think that's where it's it's good to talk to people you trust. To you know, have those conversations like you're having here, so people know even what questions to ask, and they know where where's what's a safe place and what isn't. Um, who are good people to have those conversations with, right? Not everybody is going to be that for you, um, you know. And, and nobody can guarantee a world where you're going to not have to encounter those things. But I think the thing that we're looking for is for the ones who are particularly most vulnerable around us to be treated with that kind of gentleness and care. And that's I think where it's really sad. Um, you know, whether it's the the priest who's, you know, giving someone grief for what they're wearing, which I hate to break it to you, my man, but Jesus says to pluck out your own eye, so take a seat. But, <laughs> but, you want to take a road trip? To yeah, a ex- the church? right. I'm just like, there, there, is a, there is a quick solution here that Jesus actually talked about. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that one of the things that we end up kind of seeing is people oftentimes are... You know, themselves hurt and broken and dealing with their own stuff. And I think learning to um, not excuse it, but to let it be in the context of that that is not God, that that is not Jesus, that that is not the move of the spirit. And what's more is, um, you know, God, I hope they get free. Right. Like just the amount of damage that still is going on and the amount of of brokenness, I think, in people that we just keep perpetuating on one another over and over and over again is uh, is really tragic.
0: I would describe it as a fog when I was in that space Mm -hmm. and I actually had to walk out of church for I believe it was 10 years. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even step foot because I was just like every time I think I have a revelation from the spirit, I go into church and someone squelches it or someone makes me question it. So what would you recommend for people that are trying to tell the difference between those voices?
1: That's such a good question. You know, and I just love your um, tenderness and heart towards your folks who are, who, for whom the story is not true. Mm. Right. And I think that, I think that <laughs> yeah, I think that that really comes, comes across. And I mean, I know for me myself, I, I didn't go to church for six years and mm. thought I never would return. Um, and so I think that most of us have kind of walked through, I think one of the things I would say in terms of discernment, um, you know, there's your community, there's scripture, there's your experience through which you can, you can kind of filter some of those things. But one of the things that I have found that has become um, much more important to me in the, in the last little while is, does, does this sound like something Jesus would say? Does this sound like love? Does it sound like peace and joy and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness? You know, does it sound like the fruit of the spirit? Is is the seed that it is sowing bringing goodness and healing and shalom in the world? And if it, the answer is no, then I think it, at that point you can tell a tree by its fruit. It ain't got right? it. <laughs> and so at that point you're able to say, okay, look, if the if you know a, a good example of that, I think would be. Um, you know, a lot of the toxic, uh, conversations and theologies that we've developed around LGBTQ people. Um, and the fruit of that tree is, has been death and destruction Yeah, in so many lives. Mm-hmm. It is not bringing flourishing. It is bringing damage and devastation into the lives of people and their families. And so, you know what, that's not good fruit. Yeah <laughs> you know, and I think that that's a a really key part of discernment is being able to look at it and say what kind of fruit is this tree bearing and this is something that goes back this is a parable that jesus used and so it's not like i'm something i'm making up but (laughs) i'm not that smart oh she's brilliant (laughs) yeah exactly i'm not that smart um but that's one of the things that i think that jesus tells us is to look at the fruit and so you know whether it's an individual person in your life or it's a you know theological way of being or it's a church or it's a a community i think that you can take a moment and say what's what sort of fruit is bearing does this sound like jesus Mm -hmm. does it sound like love Um, and if the answer is no, I think that that's a good starting place to begin to discern whether or not it's a place for you or whether or not it's something that you need to take into your own soul.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I think I'd like to touch too upon the vast and beautiful diversity of women, (laughs) women, you know, there's like, we in so many ways are pinned into this Tiny ideal, like you said, the June cleaver of the world, and I always try to describe too that I am not hating on any woman at all that is choosing that path, like some women fit into that paradigm beautifully and thrive. They really do want to be with the the love of their life, and they find a man that teams up with them, and they love cleaning the house and doing the dishes and raising the babies. They don't want a profession and that is perfectly fine. But in your book you talk about, you say, we haven't all made the same choices. We don't have the same experience and backgrounds. We don't have the same priorities, callings, or hobbies. We've been grouped together by folk wisdom and common anatomy. And yet we're all bearers of the image of God. So now what? Mm -hmm. So... Would you talk a bit about the diversity of women that you see in the kingdom of God?
1: Yeah, I know. I think that that's the thing that I find most, um, you know, laughable about the idea that there's one way to be a biblical woman. Right. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and, and oftentimes that's the terminology and language we use. We'll say things like, well, a real woman does or yeah. a biblical woman should, you know, and first of all, you know, I wish people loved their Bibles enough to read them because, you know, funny, you know just this, this, you know, like you were saying earlier, just these um, stories of women that are bold and that are, um, you know, even, you know, prophetic and we're leading and we're doing things with, what, with the, what God had given them to do in just such, you know, beautiful ways. So, you know, absolutely be a biblical woman, go and be a judge and an army general like Deborah. Right. Go and be an apostle like Junia. Go, you know, go ahead and bankroll the work of the ministry like Susanna and Joanna. You know, there's a million, a million ways where we see in scripture that women were living out a very different contexts and circumstances. And even something I would add on to that quote you read is we've not all been given the same opportunities, as well. We're not all starting from the, the same point. Yeah, in you know, and that would be something I would probably add back if I could rewrite things. But I think one of the things that you see is that, you know, we, we kind of have tricked out this one model and said, well, this is it. This is the shape and, and the tone and the look of how women should be or the, you know, even the tone of voice that they should have, you know, or whatever else. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what? nothing is less biblical and less godly than conformity right there is you can have unity without conformity and there's a lot of ways where we have kind of missed that letting people have room for that i mean again the amount of people that we leave out when we have this narrative when we create these small tight white little boxes of what it means we are leaving out such glorious diversity and goodness and one of the things i can't remember if i said this in the book or not but i think i did um a friend of mine often says like if it's not true in darfur or in Haiti, then it's not true, right and so it's not gospel. if I couldn't preach the same gospel to a poor woman who's being abandoned or finds herself in a, a place where she is having to do things to get money there if it's not true for a sex worker in Haiti, then it's not the gospel mm. Right. And so I think that those sorts of clarifying things can be really helpful for us to say, you know, if if the story that we're telling people about what it means to be a woman who follows Jesus leaves out 90 percent of the world's population and women and their experiences, then that's probably not the gospel Jesus would be preaching to women. Does that make sense? One hundred percent.
0: Yeah, definitely. I think I think that is fascinating. And a lot of people in their youth, whether the youth be literal or just like a younger approach to the Bible where you haven't really been like reading it too much yet. Um, it's really easy to, to just listen to a pastor or a preacher and be like, okay, so that's my role and I'm going to fit into it. <laughs> Meanwhile, you're in America and you're not taking into account your particular experience or the fact that you haven't been violated or you haven't been mutilated and you haven't been forced into human trafficking, whatever the situation may be, it's like no two people's experience are even the same, even in that limited perspective. Even you and I just as like privileged white women, I'm sure our stories have few parallels as well. And we have very different choices we've made and experiences. And yet we're both calling ourselves Christian. And so often we attack each other. Like, well, Sarah's is not actually a Christian because I made a different choice than her. It's like- <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's it, you're like you said. It's leaving a lot of diversity and beauty out of the
1: conversation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely it is. And I think that um, you know we miss so much. We miss part of the image of God when we're not all at the table, mm. right? And that's that's I think a big part of it is that you know at the end of the day it, we we are missing. We're missing out on being able to. I, I love Jesus better when I hear from women and men and people who experience and know and have walked with God in a way that I never could or have or would have. And yet it makes me love Jesus better when I understand and know why they do and what this has meant from for them. And in a lot of ways, um, de-centering that, um, you know way that we have kind of framed the conversation around men and women and relationships and marriage and leadership and whatever else and recentering other people's stories for whom that hasn't been the case i mean honestly it can be life changing and beautiful and a tremendous gift and hard and challenging but necessary oh my my goodness it's, that's good work to be engaged in
0: i know i have to say i'm i'm so impressed and in love with your community of friends that I see you in, you're like the cool kids that I'm looking at right now. <laughs> I'm just like, how do I'm I say that? <laughs> but, you know, the diversity of you, like I think of what, how many commonalities do you and Nadia Bowles-Weber have in your approach in the world <laughs> and your aesthetic? And, you know, she's so incredible. And I think it's so beautiful too, where, I think I told Pete ends this, but when I first heard Nadia, I, I heard her curse a couple of times, like on platform. And I was like, oh, wh- why would she do that? She's alienating people. Dah, dah, dah. <laughs> and I very quickly got convicted and heard God say, she's not talking to you when she like, when she's doing that. And I really strongly felt whatever your opinion on is on cussing that sort of language she to me is intelligent enough and and spirit driven enough to know some people need to be disarmed by words like that to know that they're welcome to sit at the table you know <laughs> if you have a a woman that's just had a sailor mouth her whole life and she hears an amazing spirit-filled preacher use the same kind of language maybe she sits down at the table and for me I know that my ministry, if I can call it that, is welcoming people to sit back down on the table that have broken hearts, that wanted to walk away, that, like you said, have been dismantling their faith and trying to figure out how to reconstruct it in a way that makes sense for the person they have grown to be and the way they view God and how they walk through the world in that space. And then your ministry and your books and your writing, you know, reaches in a completely different group of people as well. And at the same time, they intersect and Those are just three examples in this beautiful, you know, diverse, wonderful world that God has created. And I just think it's a great tragedy when we're pointing at each other and determining who's Christian and who has the right to speak and how we're allowed to speak and how we're allowed to approach this. When we can just have faith that we're all hearing from the Holy Spirit. And if he's telling us different things but they're not causing destruction. Like you said, the trees are growing fruit. I see the fruit of Nadia's ministry I see the fruit of people that have read your book. They are flourishing. They're blossoming. They're beautiful. So it's like, that's to me is all I need to see to understand that God's hand
1: is in this. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I remember one of the things that, um, have you heard Austin Channing Brown preach ever? Or have you read her book? No. Uh, Austin is incredible leader and teacher, her uh, recent book, she um, just came out and it's, you know, it's called, I'm Still Here. And it's uh, just this this writing on black dignity in a world made for whiteness. And every time I've heard her preach, she will start by saying, I am here for the black women in the room. And even though the room will be, I mean, for instance, in in one particular space, we are 90% white. (laughs) she knew who she was there for and the rest of us just got to eavesdrop and we just got to have and again incredibly powerful life transformative I nearly got up and ran a block uh, ran a lap around the room it was so good Mm -hmm. but it wasn't for me right I just got to listen in and eavesdrop and one of the things that Nadia says in uh Shameless actually in her most recent book which is about uh sexuality and kind of you know uh you know pushing back against purity culture a bit and I love Nadia so much, but she had this example very early in the book where she talks about crop circles and how we irrigate in farming. Like it'll be a, the field itself is a square, but the sprinkler is set up on a circle. And so it goes around the square. And meanwhile, these corners never get any irrigation. And, she, and, and, and I think that what you're saying is an example of what that analogy is in that you're saying the rich keep getting richer here. If we keep preaching to the choir and if we keep structuring ministries and only ordaining and only anointing and only calling and only listening to everybody who looks like us and experiences God like us and has done things the way that they've been done forever, then just that middle circle keeps getting more and more until they're flooded. And meanwhile, there are these corners in the field that are parched and thirsty and hungry. And if your gospel is not reaching into those corners for the people who are most vulnerable, then you are doing nothing but going in a circle in a field. Mm -hmm. And so that I think to me is, is one of the things that we have sometimes missed in a lot of these conversations is that, um, that it's gotta be God with us. That it's gotta be Emmanuel, Mm -hmm. that it has to be God with us, whether we are in the center of that circle You know, whether, you know, your life looks very unthreatening, maybe to the, you know, to people, or if you, your very existence is an act of resistance, (laughs) right? which is true for a lot of people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Either way, it's God with us. And we know that we are made in the image of God and there has to be, you know, someone will need you and need your story, need your way of being in the world. You're not called to be like me. I'm not called to be like you. I'm not called to be like Nadia which I could not be if I tried in a a lot of ways, you know, in so many ways who we are is how we encounter God. And then it's how other people can also maybe sometimes have a path as well to see God a little bit more clearly.
0: I love that. It's beautiful. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts?
1: You know, I don't think so. You had such great questions. My goodness gracious. I really appreciate all of the work that you've done and, ways that you have come alongside of the things that I've put into the world it means a lot to me in a lot of ways I think that's the thing that's really lovely about the work that we do and especially I've seen this with women is that women are incredibly generous Mm -hmm. you know with one another right and always always looking to lift up other women and elevate and amplify other women's voices Um, but I love this thing that happens in the spirit where this thing that I wrote in you know 2012 and 2013 is because it was meant for you in this moment and mm-hmm. your and the people in your your audience who are listening to it. And it's just it feels almost like um, this partnership, like this thing that we are managing to kind of like almost clasp hands over space and time and, you know, the ways that this has happened. And it just, I love it. I just love how God works like that. And it's a, a good thing to be able to be alongside of each other.
0: Well, I feel like I could talk to Sarah forever. I'm just really, really grateful for anyone that stuck around for this conversation because she has so much to offer. Um, where can people find you? I know you have sarahbessy.com where you have a beautiful blog. There's also a post I'd love for you guys to read where she talks about her journey from not being sure to fully affirming the LGBTQ community. That's really impactful. I'll link that below, but where else do we find resources and information on you?
1: Um, You know, sarahbessy.com is probably a good jump off point for everything from books to speaking schedule. Um, You know, I have a conference that uh, is coming up in October called Evolving Faith and Um, it's just kind of a a space for people who are kind of wandering and wondering to be able to find other people who are in that space and and find some hope, you know, for one another as they're kind of rethinking some of those things. And so, um, that's coming up in October. But like I said, I mean, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all those things, all those links are all there. So that's
0: it. Please like, subscribe, share with your friends, donate to my Patreon or Venmo if you can. We love you guys
1: so much. God bless.